Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to The Morning Briefing for Wednesday, June 13th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's Wednesday edition of the show the American Legion. We're going to speak to their Davy Leghorn about some interesting things taking place when it comes to contracts with those who provide medical supplies to the VA. How does it affect veterans? Well, in a couple of ways, as Davy will tell us coming up in just a little bit. And also, we're going to talk to Ken Harbaugh. Ken is a Navy veteran, former naval aviator. He's also the former president of Team Rubicon USA and now is running for office in Ohio's 7th Congressional District. We're going to talk to Ken about why he made the decision to put himself through uh, the gauntlet that is politics. We've seen it with previous guests on the show who've gone through the process and are currently going through the process. It is a, uh, a big, big election season for many reasons. One of those reasons is that there are several high profile veterans looking like they may make some waves on both the blue and red side of things. We'll talk to Ken about his thoughts on that and so much more coming up on today's show. And of course, first, let's begin by welcoming Super Producer Jake Hughes to the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you feeling? Are you getting any better? I'm feeling better, a little stuffed up still, but I'm feeling much better. Yeah, you definitely sound a little bit stuffed up still, so yeah, don't touch me and don't touch anything that I plan to touch. I'll wipe down this microphone. You should be living like the boy in the bubble, that old John Travolta <laughs> made-for-TV film that... Uh, or would it be Bubble Boy, the one with Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal? Oh yeah, that's true. Jake Gyllenhaal's Bubble Boy. That's a forgotten film. Yeah, I liked it. the movie. I thought it was funny. That was that may have been like his first big film, actually. I think it was after Donnie Darko. Was it after or before Donnie Darko? I think it was after. Was it after? Okay, so Donnie Darko wasn't a huge hit when it was in theaters. It kind of gained cult status afterwards. He would then, of course, go on to become you know an A-list actor where he was in Jarhead. He was the uh, star of Jarhead, although that uh, Sarsgaard kid or Skarsgård, whichever name it is, uh, some would argue he stole that movie. And Jamie Foxx was also fantastic in Jarhead as, I think, the gunny that was uh, was with their unit uh, during, uh, during the war. So, yeah, that's uh, an interesting, interesting callback to Bubble Boy. I'd forgotten about that. I think I confuse it with Rocket Man, the movie starring Harlan Williams. Oh, that Where he movie. goes up into space for some reason in my mind they came out around the same time and i've merged them together so now i have this picture of jake gyllenhaal in his bubble in space on mars yeah sure why not <laughs> wherever wherever he wants to be um how was your night last night and i know you're not feeling well as people may hear the coughing in the background sorry added sound effects to the show hey that's all right for like a month earlier this year i couldn't stop coughing Thankfully, uh, I was able to just turn all the microphones off so no one could hear it most of the time. But how was your uh, your evening last night? Just kind of taking it easy and relaxing and trying to get healthy? Yep, took it easy, played some video games, uh, took some NyQuil and passed out. Speaking of video games, Jake, you cover that beat for Connecting Vets because it's something that, listen, uh, some people may wonder, what do video games have to do with veterans? Well, a lot of veterans play video games. I was playing some 
NBA basketball last night on my Xbox for like one game. I like to play more. Yeah, and I have vivid memories of being in Iraq, both my tours. The first tour, the big thing was we set up a LAN network in our the building where we stayed in so we could play uh, Halo 2 competitive mm. mode. I remember playing, uh, it was, I think it was a Call of Duty game with the German medevac team in RC North. They had set up uh, a LAN within their German medevac uh, little compound that they had. And I was friends with the the combat medic for the general's close protection team. So we'd be, you know, outside the wire like 24 hours, just going hard, come back in. He'd be like, uh, hey, Eric, you want to come play some Call of Duty? Yes. Yes, I do. It was a nice <laughs> a nice break, even though we were using uh, computers and not consoles. And I'm a console guy when it comes to games. So I was getting destroyed left and right. I'm just not good, not used to the mouse and keyboard movements to move people around. But a big weekend for gaming, and I know you covered some of this stuff on Connecting Vets, or for Connecting Vets, I should say, and right at the website, ConnectingVets.com, which you should be checking out every day, or at the very least, following on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. E3, the big video game announcement ceremony, essentially. It's a, it's a, a convention, essentially, of sorts for the video game industry. Used to be more like Comic-Con, where people would show up and there would be all sorts of booths and stuff like that. Then they adjusted it a few years ago and made it more about the industry because they thought it was getting too silly with all the all the people stuff and they wanted to focus on the announcements, focus on the new games. What did you learn about E3 through your paying attention to it diligently this weekend? I learned there's a lot of good games coming out and they're for all the different systems. I think the biggest ones for me was for Microsoft showed off the new Kingdom Hearts game, which is coming out Sometime in uh, 2019, uh, Sony showed off their the sequel to their hit game, The Last of Us, The Last of Us Part Two, which has no release date, but we can definitely be sure it'll be out sometime in 2019. Uh, Nintendo came out swinging with their um, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, mm-hmm. which lists the biggest roster of characters they have of right. all the Smash Brothers games. It's kind of like Kingdom Hearts. Kingdom Hearts is a game where you... It combines all the Disney universe into one game, essentially, along with some video game characters from Sony and and and, yes. uh, and Square. Enix it's and, and it's an impressive uh, co- concept when you think about. It. They've gotten so many big name actors to come back for their roles. Like uh, they have uh, the Monsters Inc. level. They got uh, at least I know Billy Crystal to come back to voice oh, wow. uh, Mike Wazowski. Um, for the parts of the Caribbean, they've gotten Johnny Depp to come back as Captain Jack Sparrow. Hmm. They've also showed off a, a Toy Story level that has Tom Hanks. Wow. And then the the big one that everyone's excited about, what I'm not because I didn't really like the movie, is Frozen. Oh, There's a Frozen yeah. level. which I've only seen parts of that movie. Uh, my son was too young for it to be in his wheelhouse. Uh, of course, I've seen Monsters, Inc. and Toy Story 50 million times each. Uh, we own all of those because, well, I have a five-year-old, so you own a lot of those movies. Right. Like The Incredibles 2 comes out next week, or end of this week, I think, actually. My son is so excited. Thankfully, he doesn't understand calendars all that well yet, so (laughs) I can just tell him, like, no, it's not out yet, and and delay that until I actually want to go see it. But I do want to go see it. What I liked about uh, what you just said was The Last of Us Part 2. Is there a subtitle for that? The Last of Us Part 2. For real this time, it's The Last of Us. Last time wasn't The Last of Us. This time it is. Sadly, no. <laughs> but the, the trailer did show off a lot of things. It Because the thing about The Last of Us, it is really is a story-driven combat game. And the, the, the trailer showed... Um, it starts off in like this barn thing where they're they're dancing and having having fun, and uh, the lead character Ellie even we see her smooching with the love interest, 
That's really cool. And then it immediately cuts to her shanking a dude in the neck in the forest, mm. and it's followed by about five to six minutes of brutal stealth combat. Like yeah. you're crawling through under vehicles, through tall grass, yeah. jumping out and getting people, shooting them with a bow and arrow, and then it cuts back again to the smooching. And so it's like, that's how you see how interweave the story and the combat are. Yeah. Wasn't that the game where Ellen Page was upset because it, there were two games that came out, one of which she was involved in, one of which she wasn't, but it looked like the character model was based off of her? Yes. The Last of Us, they looked at the character <laughs> of Ellie, who in the last game was about 14, looked like Ellen Page. Looked like Ellen Page. And Ellen, there was some legal wrangling over whether that was actually her likeness or not, because I think she was involved in some lesser game. Life is out. strange. Yeah. Came out around the same time. So yeah, if you've got a question about video games, Jake is the guy to ask. If you've got a question about veterans issues in general, our team at ConnectingVets.com is the team to ask. And there is a little bit of news going on out there right on our website at the top. I know that veterans like those little free things that go out there. It's always nice when you get to do something enjoyable for free. And until like Bethesda decides to give out copies of Fallout 76 for free, that was the other big announcement I was aware of, really the only one I cared about. Looks like it's going to be an online multiplayer game, Fallout yes. 76. I could is, go into more details, but we're talking about other things now. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, but until they give out free copies of that, uh, you'll have to dole out some dollars. However... If you're interested in going to Busch Gardens or SeaWorld, five of their theme parks are offering free admission, 100% free, to veterans and military retirees and up to three guests free of charge. That's through July 4th. So you've only got a couple of weeks, but some people go on vacation around that time, particularly this year because the 4th of July, whoever decides these things, whoever puts together the calendar, knock it off with putting the 4th of July on a Wednesday. I know, That's right? no good. So that means, like, I'm probably going to have to take a couple vacation days to be able to go and spend time with my family up in uh, up in Connecticut, as we like to do every 4th of July. We're going to see exactly how that works out. We don't even know if we're going to be able to go out of town for it, because it's just, ugh, it's stressful. But because the 4th of July is in the middle of the week, some people are taking, like, a week vacation to just enjoy that entire nice, sunny summer week, you hope. And if you're doing it anywhere near these five Theme parks, including SeaWorld Orlando, SeaWorld San Antonio, SeaWorld San Diego, Busch Gardens Tampa Bay, and Busch Gardens Williamsburg. Williamsburg is actually not too far from us. That's uh, that's drivable if you wanted to do it. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to Busch Gardens Williamsburg when I was stationed in Norfolk, and it was only like an hour, hour and a half drive or something to get to it, if that. The offer is for a one-time visit to any of those five parks as chosen by the veteran. They're not going to tell you which one you need to go to. I know there's some people who you know, don't like SeaWorld because of the documentary. They mistreated Shamu. <laughs> well, they did. Jeez, Jake. <laughs> what do you have against the orcas? My goodness. <laughs> I didn't see it, but I do know that. Uh, Free Willy was a horrible movie. Yeah, Free Willy was a horrible movie. And that wasn't SeaWorld. That was another park, I think. That's in, what I have against orcas, though. In, in Mexico. But, oh, there you go. That that explains. They your, killed Flipper. That explains your vitriol towards him. Um, while I understand that people are uh, upset with SeaWorld because of the things shown in Blackfish, uh, there's a couple of things you need to remember. One, documentaries are typically made by people who are uh, have, a pers- have a perspective, a perspective their own personal perspective, their their goal in making that documentary and showing you something as they want it to be seen. Yes, there are documentaries where they just go and they show everything, but editing exists. So you're going to edit things. And I'm not saying that SeaWorld is perfect. I will say that I know for a fact, and I am a diver, I am an ocean conservancy uh, proponent, 
SeaWorld has done some incredible things in saving and rescuing wounded animals and saving populations that were in danger. Uh, and part of the way that they're able to do that is by raising money through the park and people come into the park to see the, the whales and the dolphins jump. And no, it's not the perfect situation for them. But uh, in many cases, it's better than the alternative. And that's what I think when it comes to animals, uh, wild animals, people often forget like anti-hunting people are like, Oh, it's cruel for you to shoot a deer who doesn't even know you're there from 200 yards away. Here's the thing about that. How do you think deer die in real life when they're not killed by hunters? You know what happens to them? They get eaten. Typically that's what happens in the wild kingdom where you have animals that get older. They get slower when they get slower. They become the weak member of the herd. Let's say it's a, uh, it's a male deer, a buck, it's either going to be eaten by a predator or killed by another buck who wants to take his spot uh, yeah, out how, there. How would you prefer to die? Getting shot in the head or eaten by a bear? Yeah, I'm going to pick neither, but... You well, know, yeah, but I'm just saying... I'm not a deer, so I don't have to worry about <laughs> things like that. You know? that's, uh, that's if they didn't want to get shot, they were reflective gear. Yeah, if they were wearing their reflective belts, the army would be like, see, if you had your reflective belt on, you would have been fine. Protection against small arms, fire vehicles, and meteorites. You would have been fine, Bambi. Uh, and in the oceans, uh, it is an absolute top dog predator eats non-predator or predator gets top level predator world. Um, so in many cases, SeaWorld has done amazing things for conservancy. So listen, I understand those who are uh, very much against SeaWorld because of what they see as the mistreatment of the animals. And I get that and I understand that. But, you know, I like to think about SeaWorld's good work that they've done as well. Uh, so anyway, three SeaWorld parks, two Bush Gardens parks, and you get these tickets online only, not at the ticket booth. So you get in, you have to provide your troop ID. So it's a very quick uh, verification process where you can go through troop ID to get that done. And it's a big deal when it comes to savings, particularly for families. If it's just Jake wants to go to, to Bush Gardens or whatever, $90 basically is what it's going to cost to go into the Thank park. you for pointing out that I'm painfully alone. No, that's not what I mean. I just mean that you don't have children. Like if I want to go to a theme park, I'm not going by myself. It's got to be me. It's got to be my wife. It's got to be my son. Maybe a grandparent comes along. So for a group of four, you're talking about $360 to get that group in there. Then you also have to consider that you're paying for everything within those parks. That's where they get you. Yeah, it costs a bit to get in, but then you also have, um, you know, you got to pay for your food. You got to pay for beverages. When you have a five-year-old like I do, everything he sees, he wants, and you're not going to get him everything, but you got to get him a little something. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be a miserable day for everybody. And it ends on the 4th of July, but... For those who are still on active duty, or the reserves, or the National Guard, you can take advantage of year-round discount admission to those parks through MWR offices, um, and 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 I've done that before. I remember going to the MWR office in Jacksonville, getting discounted tickets to Blue Man Group down at Universal Studios, going to SeaWorld, and all those different things. Uh, there are some great benefits for those on active duty, of course. Jake, you're a retiree. You can go to the MWR office on base and do that stuff. I can't. I didn't retire. I just did my 13 years and got out. So for those people who are uh, interested in that as veterans taking advantage of a deal, this isn't even discounted tickets. This is free entrance. And those in uniform, they also have the Waves of Honor program, which gets you free entrance for them and up to three other guests. That's been around for quite a while. I've been to both Bush Gardens and SeaWorld free of charge when I was on active duty. But again, through July 4th, 
Uh, those of us who are in veteran status, non-retirees or retirees, whoever, you and up to three guests free of charge to any of those five parks I mentioned. Again, SeaWorld in Orlando, San Antonio in San Diego, Bush Gardens in Tampa Bay, and Williamsburg, Virginia. We talked a little bit yesterday about the North Korean summit, Jake, and about the uh, the, specifically the media coverage of it and how yeah. you went to, let's say, oh, I don't know, Fox News and it had fairly positive coverage of the summit. You went to CNN, it had negative coverage of the summit. Uh, the reality is probably somewhere in between the way it was presented uh, by those two organizations. One thing that we're covering on this, not so much the summit in and of itself, because listen, there's enough people covering the summit. You don't need uh, us to tell you about what you're seeing every day and hearing every day. What we are talking about in a story by Matt Sainsing that you can find on Connecting Vets is that President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, the dictator of North Korea, there's an agreement for Korean war remains to be brought back home. So this is one of four points that made it into the final document that was signed by the two. And uh, after the first ever summit between the United States and North Korea's uh, uh, top leaders, figureheads, whatever you want to call them, uh, and this commits to recovering POW MIA remains, including immediate repatriation of those already identified. Because you see, there are quite a few Korean War veterans that the North Korea or Korean War uh, killed in action that the Koreans still had possession of. And we're technically still in a state of war with them where uh, it, it, it went cold, essentially. There was no you know, large scale troop movements, but there have been pot shots over the border taken by North Koreans heavily mined the DMZ there in uh, North Korea all along those borders. Of course, we had the sinking of a South Korean naval vessel by a North Korean submarine years ago. North Korea has regularly shelled uh, with artillery some South Korean islands that are near the border region there. This commitment comes a day after our friends at the VFW sent a letter to the White House that urged the president to raise the issue with Kim, Keith Harmon, uh, Keith Harmon, I should say, not Harmon. There's no D there. Uh, in the letter said, we urge you to do everything in your power to ensure that those who paid the ultimate price for freedom during the Korean War are finally returned home to their families. 5,300 American remains are still thought to be on North Korean soil. Uh, but again, the tensions and the issues between the two countries have kind of... Uh, you know, just precluded that from happening. We've we've not been able to do it, and this is a uh, a fantastic thing. And hopefully, that happens very quickly. There are still seven thousand seven hundred and two American troops unaccounted for from the Korean War, according to the Defense POW MIA Agency. Between ninety and two thousand five, joint U.S. North Korean military search teams brought two hundred and twenty nine sets of American remains home. So there have been efforts to do this in the past, but. Again, there has been such disagreement between our two nations uh, and the leadership there that any sort of cooperation was rare, and when it did happen, was extremely limited. So that's uh, at least one good thing coming out of this summit. Now, you want to see it actually happen because, again, in the past, North Korea has said many things, and hasn't exactly followed up on them. Uh, the nuclear disarmament, that's probably the biggest thing to come out of this summit. But for my money, uh, these Americans who are still in North Korea, whose families never got to have a proper burial, a proper goodbye for them, is incredibly huge. And this goes back to actually a, a conversation I was having on social media last night, Jake. Oh, really? Normally, I stay above the fray when people say what I consider uh, ridiculous or silly or insulting or stupid things. 
But someone who uh, commented on a post that I made uh, saying that IAVA was going to be on the show was essentially saying, oh, you know what? Post 9-11 veterans think they're better than everybody else. They think they're different than everybody else. There doesn't need to be an IAVA. There no other generation of veterans has created their own organizations. And, well, I pointed out the fact that that's not true. How about the Korean War Veterans Association? How about Vietnam Veterans of America? Uh, of course, this person then changed uh, from just ignoring me presenting like, oh, no, you're wrong. Said things like there's no similarity between post 9-11 combat veterans and Vietnam combat veterans. No similarity. Really? So are the wounded and dead any less wounded and dead? That's that's what I asked. And, and I actually re <laughs> retweeted that one and saying, I think I found the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard said on Twitter. And this is someone who, uh, you know, I understand their frustration with many things. They are a uh, spouse of a Vietnam veteran, a disabled Vietnam veteran, and that generation was not treated well when they got home. Here's the thing that I was trying to point out and had some people uh, sending me little messages and, and tweeting, uh, agreeing with me. Listen, that's what 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 you're doing when you start being divisive between generations of veterans is exactly what happened to the Vietnam veterans is what I was telling to this person, because that's their specific uh, lane. That's where they are, are most concerned. And it makes sense because that's their family. That's their spouse, who is that disabled Vietnam combat veteran. I absolutely 100 percent understand the frustration. I don't think that disparaging the current generation of veterans saying that we are all scamming the VA and then I have people on their side saying like, oh, all you post 9-11 people just walk into the VA with your DD-214 and you automatically get uh, you know, PTSD benefits and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, that's not true. That's not how I'm, it works no, at all. And I'm not. And what I pointed out was like, here's a here's a question. If what you're saying is true. How come I'm not getting any benefits for PTSD? Ooh, burn. And I put the answer to that is your information is not correct. That's not how it's working. So, you know, you you have this these kind of discussions where you see this infighting that's just not going to help anyone. Again, on this show and at Connecting Vets, we are working for all veterans of all shapes, all colors, all sizes, and all generations. How many Vietnam veterans have we had on this show talking about the issues that mean a lot to them? Too many to count. Yeah, quite a few. From uh, enlisted folk all the way up through uh, people who rose to the rank of general and admiral during Vietnam. We've talked to them and we try to shine a light on that. And having someone say that the generation of veterans that we're a part of thinks that we're superior and and saying like oh you guys are you guys don't know what real war is vietnam that was a real war the irony of that happening from someone who's attached to the vietnam veteran generation is it's bewildering to me because that's exactly what the World War II and Korea vets were saying to the Vietnam War vets when they came back. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, is, and you know what? That's what the 9-11 the generation will say to the next generation of veterans because that's just that's just how we talk to each other. Yeah. It, well, it, it's, it was always worse before you got there. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in the case of the World War II vets, they disparaged the Korean War vets because that war ended in a stalemate. They disparaged uh, the Korean War vets, disparaged the American vets from Vietnam because that that war ended up in what you would consider a loss, where essentially you know, Vietnam fell under complete communist control eventually. But seeing that happen, seeing someone who, who went through and witnessed those other generations disparaging the Vietnam generation, then turning around to do the exact same thing to the current generation, 
that kind of infuriated me. Now, yeah. I don't get angry too much on social media because there's really no point in it. And I have enough going on in my life besides that that I don't need to focus on it. And again, I typically don't even get involved in conversations like that. But when it when you're talking about something like this, it's right in my wheelhouse and it's something that I feel strongly about. So, you know, the, the thing that came out of it for me is we all need to work together. And this person, even despite the fact that they're disparaging myself and the rest of my brothers and sisters in arms who served during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom and the current uh, conflicts that are taking place across the globe, even with them disparaging us, guess what? We'll still do whatever we can to help you out. Yep. And that's why we're trying to shine a light on things like the Blue Water Navy Agent Orange issue. That's one that we've talked about here repeatedly. It's why we've talked to the Defense uh, POW MIA Accounting Agency about identifying those remains and getting them back. And here's the thing. We are all on the same team, arguing and fighting back and forth and having some sort of competition between who had it rougher. There's no need for that. There's no place for that. It doesn't do anything positive. It's very simple. And again, the irony of someone from a generation that had to deal with the awfulness of being disparaged by previous generations of veterans as weak and losers and scam artists. Agent Orange is nothing. Why do they have these mental health issues? I was at Okinawa and we didn't have any mental health issues coming out of that. And that was real warfare. Turning around and doing the same thing to the current generation. Knock it off. Don't that there's really no place for it there is a place on this show for any veteran who wants to come talk to us about an issue that means something to them and we are going to talk to a couple of veterans coming up later on today including american legion member davy leghorn who also works at the national headquarters of the american legion here in well it's not the national headquarters the washington dc headquarters i should say he's going to talk to us about some issues going on with contractors at the va and some legislation that the legion is very wary of uh not even really legislation but kind of an end run around legislation that the legion is very concerned about regarding contractors at the va and then we're also going to talk to ken harbaugh former navy aviator former president of team rubicon usa who's now a candidate in ohio's 7th congressional district about why he wanted to get involved in that dirty, dirty world of politics. All that's coming up on this edition of The Morning Briefing, which we will be back with right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. And we mean that. Entercom's ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms. Audio? You already knew about that because you're listening right now. Video? Yeah, we've got that too, including our newest feature on our Facebook page. We're doing little previews of the morning show every morning before we start it, and sometimes even the day before. And we've got a really big guest that we want to make sure you are aware of coming in for the show. We've also got an amazing array of articles available on ConnectingVets.com itself and, of course, posted on social media. So go ahead and follow us where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. A little click of your mouse or tap of your phone will change your life for the better. I guarantee it. You're going to get great information from great organizations like, oh, I don't know, how about the American Legion? 
Speaking of the American Legion, how'd you like that segue? It was a pretty good one. We are now joined by their Assistant Director of National Veterans Employment and Education Division, Mr. Davey Leghorn. Davey, good morning, and thank you for joining us again here on The Morning Briefing. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, of course, it's been a while since uh, we've had you in studio. So let's uh, recap exactly who Davey Leghorn is. So tell us about your background, being a veteran yourself, where you served, what you did, and uh, when you got out. Okay. So I got out in 2006. I was uh, just E4, mortar infantry guy, um, did my three years, got out, went to school, um, eventually started working for the Legion doing uh, disability claims as my first job and eventually worked into their um, policy shop. And now I cover um, down on entrepreneurship policy issues as right. it pertains to veterans and VA contracting oversight. So a busy job over there, of course. And when you think back to that transition period of your life, leaving the military, you did one tour, you did your three years, got out. Uh, what do you remember most about that period of time in your life? Was it a pretty seamless transition or a difficult one for you? Uh, it was It was seamless for me because I was already, a, I, I left college to join the service. So oh, okay. I pretty much just left the military and went back to school. I was already so, accepted. It's like you took a three-year uh, hiatus from school to go into the military and do your thing. Yeah, my mother was really pleased. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as many of them are. And how was it that you came to actually become uh, you know, part of the Legion working there? Were you a member of the Legion first, or did you uh, start working for the Legion uh, without being a member? How does that happen? I think a lot of people wonder how those who work for the American Legion come to that kind of a position. Um. You know, I, I hate to admit this, but I was not a member of the American <gasps> Legion when oh, I first started. And gracious. what's even worse, maybe not worse, I was actually a member of the VFW first before I was a member of the Legion. I <laughs> hey, it happens. But listen, you're doing great work for the Legion now, so I don't think they're going to hold it against you. But actually, that brings up an interesting question that I want to ask you about. Member of the VFW, member of the American Legion, work for the American Legion. For those vets out there, particularly in the younger generations who aren't signing up for those VSOs in the large numbers that they did post-World War II, post-Korea, uh, what would you say is the, the greatest benefit that you've been able to tangibly see, uh, not in your position at the American Legion, but in your position as a veteran from the VSOs that you're a member of? Uh, it's a great way to connect with veterans from the past generations when you go into these American Legion posts. It's when you walk into these physical posts, it's like, walking into a place where you're you, it's it's like cheers every like you're accepted no matter what race you are or who you are they know you're a veteran or you're connected to the military community and they embrace you with open arms they really do and i i can only speak for the american legion but um as long as you have your membership you could bring like 10 of your best friends in and just have a great night <laughs> yeah. at american legion post Yep. Uh, being a VFW member myself, I know my post 1469 up on Long Island. That was certainly the, I had my son's first birthday party at the VFW mm -hmm. post and uh, did that. All we had to do was pay for the food and then the, the bar was open. So people had to pay for their own drinks. But there are these benefits that I don't think people think about when they think about the American Legion and the other VSOs. Uh, and I really think they're missing out on, you know, when I hear mm -hmm. a lot of veterans talk about uh, a lack of places to really hang out and feel like part of the community and wanting that sense of community. It's right there and available for you. If you go check it out, 
I, you know, some people I think get the opinion that the uh, the the VSOs, particularly the ones that have been around for a hundred years, like the Legion has, oh, that's just some place where old guys go and they're old, you know, like Vietnam veteran ball cap or their USS Missouri ball cap to go drink beer and tell war stories. Okay, there's a little bit of that, but it's also just a great place to meet people. Also, those those old guys get disparaged so much. Guess what? They've been dealing with the VA and other issues like that for 50, 60 years in some cases. Mm -hmm. And if you have a question, they are going to have the answer. So another added benefit, I think, that comes from the VSO community. Of course, on the national level, the VSOs are doing things here in Washington, D.C. and on Capitol Hill that make all the difference for veterans. When we talk about legislation, when we talk about getting laws adapted and changed, when it's relating to veterans, there's a good chance that groups like the American Legion are the ones pushing for that. Now, just last week, Davey, I believe you testified before the Subcommittee on Investigation, Oversight, and Regulation, talking about the VA's resources for veteran-owned small businesses operating under the VA's Medical Surgical Prime Vendor Next Generation Program. Now, that is a mouthful. Thankfully, I had it written down in front of me, so I didn't try to have to try to commit it to memory. But uh, what exactly does this issue mean? Break it down for the layperson who doesn't know exactly uh, what you were testifying on and then tell us you know, exactly what, what your point of view and the Legion's point of view on this issue is. Okay. So to really uh, talk um, logically about the MedSearch Prime Vendor contracting vehicle, I kind of have to say, take a step back and talk about the Kingdomware decision, which was a, a 2016 Supreme Court decision that um, – that uh, clarified a rule that VA must follow when they uh, contract to veteran-owned small businesses. The rule states that if there is a contract that could be um, potentially bid on by two veteran-owned firms, that they would have to set it aside. Oh, okay. A very simple rule and at the basis. Okay. So the MedSurge Prime Vendor Next Generation contracting vehicle um, is supposedly going to route 40% of VA spend on medical supplies um, through this contracting vehicle, and all of it is hidden from the application of the Rule of Two. So in essence, they're sidestepping the Supreme Court's Kingdomware decision. Okay. <clears throat> So uh, what they're proposing to do on top of that is they want to privatize a lot of the contract administration um, for a period of two years. Um, initially, uh, we, we believe their end goal is to go with one um, prime vendor, which is just bad on so many levels. Right. Uh, if, if you can imagine the government literally creating a monopoly well, right. it's, it's, it's happened before, too. I mean, that's oftentimes, it seems, how government contracts work, where you just get one person providing it, and, and that's it. But this would be the government actually doing that, where they are the ones who are the, uh, the monopoly themselves, or is it the contractor that they're, that they're hiring that's the monopoly? Uh, the contracting that they're hiring. Usually, you, you rely on a lot of prime vendors to kind of bid against each other and to lower the prices by out outbidding each other. They wanna they want to simplify everything. They they don't want to deal with a lot of folks. They want to deal with one folk. It's a contracting shortcut. And what they're proposing 
uh, I mean, we initially they wanted to use one. We fought them on it. Now they decided to use four, but we 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 still know what the end game is. Hmm. They want to they want the shortcut and they want to go to just dealing with one prime vendor. It's e- it might be easier for them going out the gate, right? And you might leverage your uh, buying capacity to um, get better prices when you start. But a couple years down the road, think about it, that this one supplier and distributor is going to be able to start regulating the prices and start cutting competition out um, within two years. And eventually, you're not going to be saving any money when they're dictating what prices and which suppliers you're going to use. Yeah, so that could certainly be an issue if it comes to that point where the contractor does have that much power, which we've seen before. I mean, there's, of course, the old, uh, I I don't know how true it is, but the $10,000 toilet seats in the military where, Mm. you know, you get to that point where you have this ludicrous overspending. Oftentimes, it seems, comes out of a desire to cut spending initially, but then grows in a way that was not predicted. It sounds like in this case, you're seeing that they they may see it as easier. It may actually save them money uh, in the short term. But in the long term, you believe that it's going to end up costing them and the taxpayer money? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's I, I believe it's just general economics. When you put somebody in a position to dictate what prices to sell what items at, yeah. they're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, there aren't too many uh, corporations out there that aren't in the business of making money. So, you know, you've got that issue. Now, when it comes to this issue, I think, you know, when people hear about things like this, they hear about, oh, it's contractors and the VA. They have a hard time drawing a line between that and themselves, how it actually affects those boots on the ground, essentially, those people who are using VA facilities, those veterans. What difference do you think this could make to them or is it really more just a general difference to the american taxpayer and and trying to figure out uh, uh you know where the money's going to come from you know I, I, that's a really interesting question i think i'll tackle the first part uh it first um in terms of the the impact that it will have on veterans um this is going to affect a lot of veteran owned small businesses who participate in reselling medical supplies to uh, the VA. There are quite a few of them. Um, and uh, th- this, is, this is absolutely, this is gonna devastate them. I mean, this is gonna systematically put them out of business. Wow, then yeah. that's, that's a big deal for them. Now, for, for, the, for the patient, is there any way that this would directly affect them? Or is it something that would really be more of, again, just a taxpayer issue mm-hmm. than something that'll affect the, the VA patients at their facilities? So how VA purchases medical supplies absolutely affects the most vulnerable segment of the American Legion's constituency, which is veterans' patients. Um, the, the issue that we're having is we don't know if this is going to affect them until it does. But VA's narrative for uh, asking for this to be pri- contract administration to be privatized is tugging at people's heartstrings saying, oh, the veterans patients are uh, absolutely going to be affected if you don't let us do X, Y and Z, you know, and it's. It's unproven. It's not true. They haven't used any empirical evidence to convince us otherwise right. in, in their proposals. 
And, and we're just thinking, you know, where is this coming from? I mean, the VA has been around since, you know, the 1860s, right? Right. And, and this, this whole medical infrastructure has been there for over 150 years. And, and you're saying that the, this new contracting vehicle that's only been around since the beginning of 2018 has the ability to bring all that down? Right. Based on what? Yeah, that is an interesting question. I think the counter argument to that would be, you know, it's been around for 150 years and it seems that they're still using some of the same processes that they were in the 1860s. <laughs> because as we know, the VA is far from perfect. There are some serious issues at the VA. And I think there are those people who just get tired of hearing like, well, the VA is going to be, we're going to be able to keep it within the VA and fix itself. And it just never seems to get fixed. I mean, the wait times that we thought were going to be a thing of the past, there's still a thing of the present and things like that, where I think it builds up a frustration in the veteran community as well as in the politicians and all that stuff. Do you worry that that sort of frustration over a lack of movement on these issues could force more things like this contracting uh, issue that you're talking about to happen? Uh, unfortunately, yes. However, um, you know, we, we've pulled uh, some of the veterans' patients uh, when we do our um, uh, site visits to the VA hospitals. And most veterans' patients uh, care deeply about their local VA, and they, they think that they are being offered the best care in the world. You know, VA is the best avenue for veterans to receive care. We just, the American Legion just needs them to step up to their responsibilities, one of which is to uh, manage your contractors, you know, and administer the contracts uh, with due diligence. It's, it's not a hard, I mean, it can be a hard task, right. but you, it's, it's a part of your job. You just have to do it. It is one of those things that needs to get done, and there's a lot that needs to get done at the uh, the VA, and it's not a, a discussion of uh, what needs to get done. I think most people can agree on that, but really a way, uh, a discussion of what's the way to do it? How do we best do it? So it, it sounds like uh, the possibility of this uh, sidestep, as you said, of the rules that are in place is not something that the Legion is for. Was there anything when you testified or is there anything that the Legion sees as a possible um, a possible alternative to this or should things just stay the way that they are? Okay, so this is a new contracting vehicle. Uh, the American Legion questions why it exists, if mm. it could potentially bring the VA to, to its knees, right? Right. Um, there are other contracting vehicles in place that the VA has abandoned to pursue this new, shiny new contracting vehicle that will fully leverage their buying capacity. You know, I recognize that there are some pluses to using it, but um, it doesn't mean that you abandon something that has worked in the past. And the stuff that worked in the past is called the federal supply schedule. Hmm. And when it comes to the VA, again, so many of the issues that we've seen in the past are, are as, as you kind of alluded to, they're bureaucratic in nature, where the care that veterans are receiving, I think most veterans seem to be fairly happy with the care that they're receiving at the VA. That's not a blanket statement. There are VAs that are 
you know, one-star facilities that are severely lacking in certain areas. We've had, you know, surgical instruments left inside of patients, things like that. But that happens at any, any medical facility, let alone at what is essentially the largest medical organization in the entire United States. When it comes to those bureaucratic issues, the ones that I think are easier for the veteran to understand are the ones that affect us directly. Hey, why am I waiting so long to get this appointment? Why am I sitting at the place where you hand out the prescriptions for four hours waiting for someone to fill up a bottle of pills? Seems like that should take a couple of seconds. That's easy for people to wrap their head around. Do you think it's more difficult for veterans to to wrap their head around and try to find out why they should care about something like, you know, a contracting issue, which doesn't seem to have the direct effect on the patient that they would be able to see like that wait time for an appointment or waiting to get the prescription filled? Uh, I, I can tell you with an example that um, it it does matter. It matters gravely. If you look back at the Phoenix scandal, right. uh, Phoenix VAMC scandal that happened, I believe, 2013. Yeah, it was about that five years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the issues was a contractor who wasn't, uh, whose data wasn't being migrated to the VA side and nobody was in the middle doing, you know, their, their due diligence on if veterans that were being referred to the contractor and if the contractor was uh, doing what they were supposed to do and referring them back to the VA. Right. And it was be- one of one of the issues was that disconnect. So in terms of, um, again, VA purchases supplies and services from contractors. You know, these things are contracted out. Uh, we absolutely have to care because it affects your care, period. Right. And as you testified, it can affect veteran-owned businesses as well, right? There are small Mm -hmm. businesses who have uh, some part in this as far as having a contract with the VA and then going to be kind of muscled out by the larger companies. Is that one other thing that the Legion's concerned about? Yeah. And in fact, that's what the main focus of our testimony was on. We want to ensure that um, a lot of our distributors, our veteran-owned small business who are distributors, um, are still being utilized because they offer a lot of value to the procurement process. Hmm. Um, they offer stuff like last mile delivery. You know, there, there are a lot of things that large businesses and warehousers won't do. They won't stockpile 110% of what the VA needs. They won't, um, uh, they, they won't do maintenance they won't do small business reporting. You know, the, the great data that we have in terms of how much the government is spending towards small business and um, how much they're being utilized and what they're doing, all of that data comes from self-reporting from the small businesses, not, not the prime vendors. Hmm. Um, they also do a lot of customer service. Big warehousers are not going to um, have great customer service with the VA answer every question in the world. Our small business distributors do that. Right. And can we look at this similarly to, uh, you know, as we've seen in so many small towns around the country where the big box department store comes in and is able to offer goods at a lower price, but doesn't offer the same level of service. But then you have to make that decision. What do I care more about? Do I care more about the service with a smile or the fact that I'm paying half as much? Of course, then when the competition is driven out of business, you often see those prices rise up a little bit. Is that kind of an analogy for what's going on here? 
in government contracting, it's just a little bit different. Um, price, you don't have to worry about that much because believe it or not, a lot of these distributors that sell to the VA, uh, they're on several other contracts and they're vetted like eight different times already. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're up to date on all their compliances to, you know, the Bioamerican Act, the, the TAA, the FDA, and, and all, all sort of other acronyms, right? right. Um, but they also need to have fair and reasonable pricing as dictated by the government already. Hmm. So there's a there, there's a, a limitation, like a range of what the price can be. Like there's a maximum, minimum range, mm -hmm. and you go from there. Yeah, in order to be competitive and to be accepted into uh, the GSA schedule program, it their prices have to be fair and reasonable, and that's pre-negotiated with the government already. Hmm. Now, um, I, I I I can only speak for one company that that I know that have worked into their um, company policy that if they don't have anything that the VA needs, they will sell it to VA. They will get it overnight and they will send it to the VA. They will sell it to VA at the pre-negotiated price at a loss hmm. because they don't have it in stock. They're willing to do that because they're veterans. And they know that, that these medical supplies are going to the care of veterans. That's why they do it. What sort of medical supplies are we talking about here? Or is it really everything? Is it everything across the board or is it anything specific? You know, I'm smiling because <laughs> uh, medical supplies is actually a misnomer here because we're not just talking about medical and surgical supplies. We're talking about anything that could be related. So believe it or not, toilet paper, hmm. paper products are on the uh, MedSearch Prime vendor contracts. So anything that could be, that would feasibly be used at a VA hospital, whether you're talking about sheets or pillows or things like, I mean, that's all included. Oh, it is really broad. <laughs> hey, I guess it's a medical supply. If it's being used at a hospital, it's, it's contributing mm -hmm. to the medical process in one way or another. Now, if this is something that people are interested in, Davey, and we're speaking with Davey Leghorn, Assistant Director of National Veterans Employment and Education Division at the American Legion. How do they go about finding out more about this? And if it's something that's uh, you know possible to let their uh, legislators know that they support it, they don't support it, that kind of thing, where can they go to find out information about issues like this that may not be getting you know front page ink on the New York Times like the North Korea summit? Uh, right. Uh, this is so niche that the best thing to do is to contact us at the American Legion to let us know that you support. We'll, we'll definitely discuss with you what avenues you you can pursue to help us advocate. Right. Um, but there are also other organizations that are singularly focused on um, uh, government contracting. Okay. Like that the National Coalition for Veteran-Owned Small Businesses um, or uh, the... United States Veteran Small Business Alliance. Right. You know, they're, they're, they are tracking this issue as well. And so a great way of getting involved is just tapping into that vein. It certainly would seem to be. Of course, those organizations might not have quite the pull of an American Legion. And we've been speaking with their assistant director of National Veterans Employment and Education, Davey Leghorn. Davey, if people want to find out more about the American Legion, find out more about this issue, find out about what you guys in the Employment and Education Division are doing over there, where can they go to learn about those issues? They should go to legion.org and look up the tab services and go to our career center. There you'll see everything that we do on a scrolling marquee. 
and you could go further into the weed and read our uh, past articles and check out some of the amazing employment tools that we have. Davey Leghorn, American Legion, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure to have you over here at Connecting Vets. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day, and we'll be back right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing on Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Our next guest has decided for some reason to put himself through the ringer of politics, and that's after time spent being put through the ringer as a naval aviator. He is Mr. Ken Harbaugh, Harbaugh candidate for Congress out in Ohio's 7th District, and joins us now on The Morning Briefing. Ken, good morning. How are you today? We're going to have you say that one more time because this microphone didn't pick it up. That's weird. <laughs> All right, go. So... Great to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Now, before we get to why you would want to put yourself through the uh, the whole rigmarole of politics, <laughs> let's talk about who exactly Ken Harbaugh is. As I mentioned, former naval aviator. So give us the brief Cliff's Notes version of your service. You know, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you served in my beloved Navy. You bet. I was actually a walk-on. I uh, didn't do the ROTC route or the academy, but... About two-thirds of the way through school, realized I needed to do something real, something meaningful. Uh, I realized I hadn't done anything to to deserve the privileges I was enjoying as an American and uh, walked into a recruiter's office and said, how do I become a Navy pilot? Uh, Finished my degree. A week later, was down in uh, OCS going through as uh, as an off-the-street naval aviation candidate. A year later, had my wings and was off to, um, to my operational squadron, VQ-1. That's pretty cool. Now, what aircraft was it that you were flying while you were serving? Flying an EP-3, so signals, intelligence, and combat recon. Uh, most missions over the Middle East, uh, off of North Korea, of course, after 9-11, everything shifted over to the Middle East. Yeah, well, that's, of course, understandable. And uh, I would imagine an interesting job, the one that doesn't necessarily translate very well to the outside world. So let's talk about your transition going from naval aviator Ken Harbaugh to naval veteran Ken Harbaugh. What do you remember about that time? Sure. I, I got out in 05, and I'm going to say something that, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners will relate to. It was the toughest professional decision of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I had a two-week-old daughter at the time, and I was looking at a set of orders uh, for a disassociated tour, likely a ground tour in Iraq. And I looked at Katie and thought, it's going to take a, a better man than I to, to do that. I got out, went back to school, and was pretty confident that I was on this, this clear trajectory, had this path back into civilian life. Uh, but it, it wasn't quite that smooth. You know, it's it's often the case that there's a plan for when you got out. I'm I'm a rare case. I wanted to be doing a radio show, and boom, here I am. <laughs> it just happened are. to work out that way for me. For you, what was the plan that you thought? What was the path that you thought you were going to be on that didn't work out for you the way you wanted? Sure, I thought I might wind up a lawyer. I mean, a lot of people who go through law school wind up as lawyers, but I had uh, an eye-opening moment, really a gut punch uh, during my first year, sitting in a coffee shop across the street from the law school, 
uh, probably, you know, deep into a, a, a law text and a couple of army trucks rumbled by probably from one of the armories north of town. And uh, a kid sitting next to me said, trying to be funny, but loud enough for everyone to hear what is, is there a war going on? And this was 2006. Not only was there wow. one war going on, there were two. And I, I remember standing up, knocking my drink over. I wanted to give this kid a piece of my mind. And then I realized, you know what? Not his fault. We have built these, these bubbles separating uh, the, the 1% doing the fighting from the rest uh, on whose behalf they fight. And I decided to do something about it. Yeah, and of course, one of the things that you did about it was bringing attention to what veterans are doing with Team Rubicon. Right. Now, how did you become part of the Team Rubicon uh, organization? I joined uh, in time for their biggest international mission uh, to, to date. They started in, in 2010 in the wake of the earthquake that devastated Port-au-Prince, Haiti. I'd been tracking them from that, that very beginning. Another organization I uh, helped start while in law school, provided some of the um, uh, some of the, the, the seed money to, uh, to one of the founders. But in, in 2013, I realized this organization is going to change the world. It's certainly going to change how we view the, the returning vet so that as a country, as a society, we, we begin to view them as assets, not liabilities. And that is an absolute important, uh, an absolute piece of importance for the veteran experience and for the way that we're perceived by the public is through our actions and through what we're doing, not what right. people might think, you know, a soldier, sailor, marine, or airman is supposed to be when they get out. There's nothing we're supposed to be. We are who we are. We're doing what we are. And most of that is, is good things. And it's great to see organizations like Team Rubicon uh, that works within those amazing spaces and shows the great things that veterans are doing. When you reflect on the transition period, before we move on to talking about politics, yeah. what are some lessons that you learned that you think might benefit someone who's either going through that process now or coming up on it soon? What are some of those those big things that stick out from yeah. your memories? Yeah, thanks, Eric. The biggest one is is that service is in our DNA, <clears throat> and that that compulsion to serve doesn't end when you take off the uniform, even if you want it to. I remember... After that incident in, uh, in the coffee shop, uh, I, I got word shortly thereafter that a buddy of mine had been, um, had been blown up in a suicide truck bomb attack in Fallujah, and I found myself driving down to Bethesda Naval Hospital mm. just to spend some time with uh, the Marines recovering there. And I had this, this naive notion on I-95 and down there that I was going to provide some comfort and company to these Marines and when I got there and began to talk to them, exactly the opposite happened. Because every single one of them told me essentially the same thing. They wanted to get back to their units. They yeah. wanted to serve again. And yeah. I knew a lot of them couldn't because of how badly they were hurt. But what they were really saying was they wanted to be useful. And I'll never forget what one of them said to me as he was about to be wheeled into his 10th reconstructive surgery. He, he said, sir, I just lost my legs. That's it. I didn't lose my desire to serve and my pride in being an American. And that stuck with me. That is the kind of thing that often does stick with you and yeah. often can give you uh, even more of a sense of purpose. And let's talk about where your sense of purpose is taking you now, Ken Harbaugh. For some reason, you've decided, hey, I want people to accuse me of being everything that they hate <laughs> and everything that they love, sometimes at the same time. So you, of course, are running for Congress out in Ohio's 7th District. That's right. What made you decide to go ahead and throw your hat in the ring for that? It was 2016. It was the entire election cycle, and 
feeling like the division and the anger and the rancor that I saw pouring out of out of Washington, out of uh, our our political class, wasn't at all representative of the America I had fought for. It certainly wasn't doing right by the memory of the, the buddies of mine who, who didn't make it home. And I've also got three kids, and I I looked at them and and decided that I, I wanted to do whatever I needed to to make sure they inherited the country I fought for. Mm. And that meant getting off the sidelines and stepping into the breach and, and running for Congress. There are, of course, positives to running for Congress. You get to let people know about the things that you care about. And looking at the Ken Harbaugh for Congress website, of course, I see your values. And let's talk about those. Sure. Let's talk about the items that are, are most important to you as you run. Because as I look through these five things, it may be a coincidence, but I'm guessing not. These five things uh, tend to be the most important things that the veterans we talk to are interested in, right. the most important things that the veteran service organizations are looking for, and those are health care, jobs, the opioid crisis, education, and, of course, veterans Better. themselves. How did you choose those five things, and why are they of the utmost importance to you? Well, the good thing is they come from the gut. I mean, they are certainly a reflection of the, the most important issues among my neighbors in my home district, the Ohio 7th, but they're deeply personal. Let's take the, the first one, health care. Uh, we we're living through a health care crisis, and I, as a father, have lived through a health care crisis. My, my middle daughter, Lizzie, was born needing four surgeries before she turned four years old. Mm. And Anne-Marie and I scheduled the first one of those without knowing how we would pay for it. It was a terrifying place to be in as, as a family, as a father. Um, I got lucky. I got a, a great job with a Cleveland firm that took care of us, paid for all four of those surgeries, but it shouldn't be a roll of the dice in the richest country on earth. That's not what I fought for. And unless we win the argument about what healthcare is in this country, Lizzie, with her pre-existing condition and tens of thousands of other kids and, and families are going to be out of luck in Lizzie's case until she turns 65 and goes on Medicare. That's not right. Mm. Jobs is another one. And, uh, you know, there have been recent reports, uh, the Department of Labor putting out statistics saying that, uh, you know, things are looking better. You know, the unemployment yeah. unemployment rate is at an all-time low. It's not at zero, which is where we want it to be. <laughs> I don't know if that's ever going to be achievable. Of course, there are some things that people take issue with. When you talk to experts in that field, like those who've stopped looking for work are no longer counted when it comes to the unemployment rate. When it comes to Ohio's 7th District, your hometown, how's the job situation looking in that region? Because it's a part of the country that's often you know, called flyover country. The places that, oh, the Rust Belt, there's things going on out there. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't call tired? it either of those. Uh, there's, there's an issue not just with those who've given up, but those who are underemployed. And I come at this problem as the, the president, the past president of Team Rubicon Global, where we have, uh, some people say, read retrained, I like to say redeployed, tens of thousands of military veterans realizing that what they, what they bring might not be the hard skills that they need on day one of a disaster relief mission, but the soft skills that are so much more important, the ability to, to function in a team thrown together at the last minute, the ability to solve problems with a bare minimum of resources, uh, the ability to, to to function in a chaotic environment. When I think about the workers in the Ohio 7th, one of the messages I convey every time I'm in one of these small towns across the 7th that, uh, that has been really hit by the, the industries pulling up and, and leaving, I say, 
remind yourselves every morning that just because the industry in this town has failed doesn't mean you have failed. We need to redeploy our workers because we got the best workers in the world in the Ohio 7th if given the chance. Like we proved at Team Rubicon, if you give folks the, with the aptitude to work and the, the hunger for hard work, um, we, can, we can do great things. We're speaking with Ken Harbaugh. Ken is a United States Navy veteran, one of those naval aviators. I mean, yeah, he was on the officer side and not the enlisted side of my Navy, but still, I like him plenty enough, even though he's one of those former officers. When we talk about the opioid crisis, Ken, this is something that uh, has devastated the the American community and the veteran community almost in specifically, where we are being prescribed opioids at rates that are far above the civilian population, and we also happen to have suicide rates that are pretty much higher than the uh, than oh, overdose uh, rates yep. that are higher than the civilian population. What do you think can be done about the opioid issue? The first thing we have to do is call it what it is, which is an epidemic. And this thing, if you can't tell, I'm, I get fired up about it because I approach it again as the as the leader of a disaster relief organization, I know what I'm looking at. I've been in refugee camps on the verge of epidemic outbreaks. That's what we're looking at nationally, and in particular in Ohio, which is at the epicenter of this epidemic. We're looking at a medical phenomenon, but we're not treating it like a medical phenomenon. I can't tell you how many times I have a conversation with a grandparent or, or a sibling uh, or a parent who says, I brought my loved one to the treatment center, and the charge nurse was, uh, was welcoming us and said, thank you so much for arriving at this point. This is a critical first step in the recovery process. And then choking back tears, that nurse says, come back in three weeks. We don't have a bed available. And they almost never make it back. That is not the sign mm. of, uh, of an establishment that is serious about treating this crisis for what it is. And on the other side, even law enforcement, every single sheriff I've ridden along with, every single deputy has said some variation of we can't just arrest our way out of this problem. No. We have to treat it. It's one of those things where uh, my, my wife's favorite television show right now is called Live PD, where they huh. follow the police yeah. around live. It's on a few minute delay because they're not wanting to show murders <laughs> and things like that and dead bodies. But when you see each and every community that they're filming in all around the country in many states, they're all dealing with different issues, but there's one common thread and that is opioids yeah. and and pills and all these things it, it, it affects so many people and it's so devastating and uh, they're 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 doing some work at places like the va to try to address it but it doesn't sound like you think they're doing enough anywhere around the country we're, we're at ground zero in in the ohio seventh in the state we had a thousand more kids in foster care this christmas compared to the christmas before i mean when you look at the collateral damage not just the lives lost which is horrific by itself. We oh, lost yeah. more people to the opioid epidemic nationally last year than we lost during the entire Vietnam War. Hmm. That's, when you that's look sobering. at the, the, the overburdened foster care system, when you look at hepatitis rates shooting through the roof because of the IV users, for every 100 people not in treatment, we have 56 more burglaries. I mean, the, the cost is literally incalculable, uh, and it's going up because we're not treating this crisis for what it is, which is an epidemic. To let you know how, how big a deal this is, how important it is, and how much news there constantly is, just looking over at the headlines as they come through today, the state of Massachusetts is suing the maker of OxyContin over the deadly opioid crisis. Yeah. So I, it does seem with this that there are different people pulling in different directions, but we all want to address it. It's just finding the right way to go about it. And uh, it seems like running for office is certainly, whether on the local or the national level, certainly the best way to get involved in making a change at that level. Is, is that what really pushed you to do this? 
this is a big one. I mean, this is the arterial wound in the district and disaster response. Of course, you you drop in, you see a million things that need to be addressed, but you got to stop the bleeding first. Mm. The opioid epidemic is the arterial wound in the Ohio 7th. Uh, and I'm not convinced we're all pulling in the same direction because I, I fear we have um, an attorney general who y- you get the impression he's got one tool in his toolkit. That's a hammer. Every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> uh, and we're talking about reigniting the war on drugs. That's crazy. Yeah. That's Especially when you talk to the cops on the front lines who tell you we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. We got to treat it. And we've got um, at least in the, in the in the rep, I'm trying to replace someone who was voted to gut rural treatment centers to to close clinics, mm. uh, and, and that's making it worse. It's certainly an issue that, uh, as you said, not all pulling in the in the same direction. I think everybody's got their own idea of how to deal with it. But yeah, when you are a uh, a carpenter and the only tool you've got is a hammer, everything does look a little bit like a nail. We're speaking with Ken Harbaugh, who I'd like to think probably has more tools in his toolbox than just a hammer as he runs for uh, Congress in Ohio's 7th District. Uh, Two more things, and we want to talk about uh, one of them specifically before the other one we'll just talk about in general. Education. When it comes to education, uh, I'm starting to deal with this uh, on the parental side now. I have a son who's going to enter kindergarten next year, so we're worried about the school district and all these things going on there. There's that. There's secondary education. There's the university uh, system, which drains people's bank accounts, not just while they're going there, but long after they've graduated, unless they're lucky enough to maybe uh, attend someplace where the GI Bill covers all of your tuition funds. Uh, Where do you stand on education? What would you like to see changed about the way that we teach in this country? I got three kids in public school. I've spent time in front of a a classroom. My wife spent the first half of her career in uh, in public education. I think we got to double down on it. Honestly, public education isn't just about training uh, a, a workforce. It's about building citizens. It really is. And when I look at the hollowing out of citizenship and this this notion of uh, rights and responsibilities incumbent upon uh, those of us who make this democracy work, I think it starts in our schools. And I think we got to invest in them in a way that we haven't been. Uh, I think that a lot of people will agree with you on that one. And this last issue, well, our audience in specific wants to talk about, and that is veterans. And I want to ask you a specific question about veterans doing something similar to what you're doing. And we've had several of them on the show, those who are recently elected, those who are running for office now. Uh, Dan Crenshaw down in Houston, Texas, just won the Republican nomination, looking like he might have a pretty good shot to take that seat. Uh, Brian Mass down in Florida. You'll notice if uh, anyone's been paying attention for the first 20 minutes or so that we've been talking to Ken, I haven't even mentioned your party. And I do that for a specific reason. One, I don't particularly care what anybody's party is. I just want to know how they stand on things, what they, what their point of view is. Because if you throw out that D, that R, or that occasional I, people oftentimes jump to a conclusion before they know anything about the candidate other than, hey, what team does he play for? What jersey is he wearing? Not worried about that. Worried about getting things done. So I wanted our audience to not know whether you were a Democrat (laughs) or a Republican. Now I'll tell them. You are running on the Democratic ticket in Ohio's 7th District. Looking at people like, let's say, a Dan Crenshaw down in Houston. Do you feel that more veterans running for office and the success we've seen them have in the primaries uh, in in recent days, months, and in the last couple of years, do you think that's a good thing? And do you think that someone being your fellow veteran will make it easier to reach across party lines and, and get things done? Absolutely. Absolutely. For a couple of reasons. One, vets have proven that they are going to put the country first. Coincidentally, 
representatives to Congress swear the same oath of office. It's not to a party. It's certainly not to any individual. It's to the Constitution of the United States. Every vet knows what what I'm talking about because we raised our right hands and, and swore that oath. There's a difference, though, when you say those words and then you put your life on the line for them. I think that's what's missing in Congress now. We have the lowest percentage of veterans in Congress than at any point in the modern era. And I think there's a direct link between that and the lack of accountability we're seeing between that and the misadventures we've gotten into as a country over the last decades. We need more vets in Congress from both parties, people with not just the experience, but the moral authority to ask the tough questions, people who have proven that they're going to risk everything to put the country first. Our campaign motto is country over party, and it's not something we arrived at uh, because I was running for office. It's how I've lived my life. We're speaking with Ken Harbaugh. He's running for Congress in Ohio's 7th District. And it also makes me think of another former guest of the show, New Mexico Representative Steve Pierce, Air Force, who talked, uh, you know, thinking a little outside the box, like, hey, some of our disabled, wounded warriors, maybe instead of, you know, medically retiring them, maybe we can use them as uh, different in different jobs like drone pilots. I mean, just having people think outside the box right. on different things within the veteran community and then seeing bipartisan cooperation by people like Tulsi Gabbard and Brian Mast, who mm-hmm. are pretty darn far apart on the political spectrum, yeah. being able to come together and work closely on an issue like burn pits. How heartening is it to see for you, and how much does it make you want to be a part of what's going on in D.C. with <laughs> it's, that? It's incredibly encouraging. And I'm going to say something that, that might land kind of funny, but I honestly have never been prouder to be an American than I am now running for Congress because I get to see Americans – Coming together in a moment of crisis, in a moment of political crisis, Americans from both sides of the aisle realizing that something is broken, uh, and it's restored my faith. The faith that, that I saw as a Navy pilot leading those crews who were mission-focused and couldn't care less about the politics of the sailor to their right or their left, the, the, the faith that was emboldened as leader of Team Rubicon Global, we didn't ask the people we were pulling out of trees uh, or the people whose homes we were were helping to salvage uh, what their party was. And when I'm out knocking on doors as a candidate, when we're holding these town halls, the vast majority of Americans I talk to are so beyond the R or the D after your name. They just want a government that works for them. And that is, I think, the key. That's what everybody wants. And the partisan politics, it's unfortunate the level that it's gotten to from all sides right now. Um, And I'd like to see that change. And one thing I'd also like to see change, Ken, is... Actually, veterans are uh, fairly well represented when it comes to seats in Congress and in the Senate as far as the percentage of the population versus the percentage percentage serving. One place where veterans are severely underrepresented is on congressional staffs. Mm. When it comes to, you know, let's say uh, look into a, a bright, rosy future, I'm sure you're hoping you, you make it and you get elected. Are you going to bring veterans onto your team in Washington, D.C., and how important would that be to you to make sure that you do have vet representation? I've got vets on the team already, on the campaign team, because of those things that I saw them bring to Team Rubicon, that ability to, to, to function in a crisis, and there's a crisis every day out there, the ability to, to, to work in, in teams, the ability to, to lead and solve problems with a bare minimum of resources. We've proven we can do that in the toughest environments imaginable, uh, I don't see D.C. being that much tougher than Kabul. <laughs> no, it's a little bit different. Some people might say deadlier in a way, but I don't know about that. As we finish up here, we're speaking with Ken Harbaugh. He's running for 
nomination, or sorry, sorry, running for Congress in Ohio's 7th District. He is a Navy veteran himself. When you look at the road ahead, you're trying to unseat someone who's who's in Congress. What do you think your chances are when you look towards the election? They're pretty darn good. They are pretty darn good, and I could give you the metrics to, to make the case, um, making the list of the top 35 or so races in the country, getting the the key endorsements we need. But the reason I know that we've got a shot is because I'm out there talking to folks. Our town halls are standing room only occasions these days. Um, and and people are just hungry for someone who will show up. We're, we're running against a representative who, who, by all counts, is a decent fellow, but I think is uh, part of this political class that has, as we would have said in the Navy, flown below the radar, never held a town hall, um, never gotten a piece of legislation passed. Hmm. And, and folks are upset about that. If there is one bullet on the job description that should be all caps and bold and, and underlined, it's show up. A, a voter made the point to me <laughs> at this last town hall that the word present is in the job title, representative. <laughs> yes, it Show is. Show the hell up and do your job. Well, I think those are words to live by for everyone serving in Congress right now. Show up and do your job. Ken Harbaugh is hoping he gets the opportunity to show up in Congress and do his job representing Ohio's 7th District. Now, Ken, if people want to find out more about you, more about your campaign, where can they go to do so? Ken Harbaugh for Congress.com. And we would love to have your help. Uh, if, you're, if you're in the 7th, if you're in Ohio, we are knocking on doors Every weekend, we are making phone calls. We're getting the message out that the the people of the Ohio 7th deserve a rep who's going to be there for them. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for joining us on The Morning Briefing. We really appreciate your time, and best of luck to you in your election out there. Thank you, Eric. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.